Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy and ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom. Here's a piece yours truly hosted that I trust you will enjoy. The world is shaky at this moment. Yeah, we may get a deal with China, but China's got a deal with Hong Kong. Here to talk about the disarray around us is the author of A World in Disarray, American Foreign Policy and the Crisis of the Old Order. Richard Haas's book, which came out a year ago, or actually two now, and remains actually incredibly relevant. Richard Haas is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations. Good morning, Richard. Thanks for joining me early. Good morning, Mr. Hewitt. How are you? I am terrific. I am curious what you make of what is happening in Hong Kong. I was there myself, you know, six weeks ago, and it was the most orderly of places. There's no trash. There's no dissent. There's no uh, upset. Everything just works. And then all of a sudden, the city's in a, in a convulsion. I was there a few months ago as well. When I was there, it was a little bit depressing. You sense that the unique character of Hong Kong was beginning to fade, and there was more and more discontent. And when I left, my sense was I, didn't, I wasn't smart enough to know what would trigger something, but I just felt it was on a, a bad trajectory. And this extradition law that was proposed turned out to be the triggering event. That now has been pulled back. But what's the most interesting is two things. One is that wasn't enough to, to satisfy the protesters. Their, their concerns are really fundamental. And it's 20 years after the British handover. They are unhappy by the gradual loss of the autonomous or separate character of, of Hong Kong. And I think for the mainland, for the people in Beijing, this represents a real threat because it, it contains with it both precedent. What happens there could happen elsewhere. And it contains with it what you might call the virus of liberalism, which is a real threat to the control of the party particularly given that this is a party under Xi Jinping that has sought to reconsolidate power at the center. So I actually think this is something to watch. And the states now, as big as they are for the seven or so million people of Hong Kong, I actually think this has real implications for the 1.3 billion people on the mainland. Now, what uh, China has announced, there will be no compromise. They will not tolerate this sort of uh, public displays of lawlessness. What does that uh, portend in your view, Richard Haas? Well, the Chinese are going to have to make a choice. Uh, Do they crack down, which would be financially disruptive, given that Hong Kong is still in many ways an important financial gateway between the mainland and the world? Or or, or if they don't don't crack down, they've got a political problem. My guess is if they had to choose, they will crack down. So I think in the first instance, and we're beginning to to see signs of it, you're going to see the local police essentially get rougher and rougher. And we'll just have to see how this plays out. But my guess is at the end of the day, the mainland will determine that it will need to do whatever needs doing in order to pressure Hong Kong. Of course, now that reminds of Tiananmen Square 30 years ago. We don't know the death toll there. Some people think it's four figures, and it was massive in any 
context, mm-hmm. are we looking at a Tiananmen Square in Hong Kong? Potentially much bigger. This, you know, Tiananmen Square was, you know, localized in many ways geographically, and even if 1,000-plus people died, this potentially is you know, much larger. It's not in the center of Beijing in a hallowed space, but it's, it's, this is significant, and I think the scale of the protest, you, we've seen millions of people out in the streets. A significant percentage of the local population has come out and, and protested. And so, you know, this could, I'm not saying it will, but this could have a scale that would dwarf Tiananmen. Now, they've got, obviously, a secret police network, and they have the, mm-hmm. the new facial recognition technology, and they can uh, impose order in small ways. But you really, as you're pointing out, you really can't control two million people. Uh, absent uh, Napoleon and his cannon at the Tuileries, right? That's how you control two million people, is uh, the, the, what the whiff of grape shot began during the the French Revolution, when Napoleon began his rise to power, the whiff of grape shot here would clear the streets as well. But what does that do to the world economy? And let me just be very selfish for a moment to the American stock exchange if that happens. Well, again, my, my guess is before they started doing large scale uses of force, you would have things like selective arrests and they would try to get, get the leadership to the extent this is an, is an organized uh, movement. Look, this would, this would have a – if things get really bad in Hong Kong and people don't go to work or can't get to work, it would have a significant effect, I would expect, on the, on the Chinese economy. It's the world's second largest, so it would have real implications for Asian and global uh, markets. And you know, we could go down that path. Again, this is uh, – you know, I'm not going to sit here and say I'm saying this because what's, what's interesting – is it's not clear now what the goals are. What, what's so interesting about this is the longer this goes on, the goals of the opposition in Hong Kong begin to grow. It was one thing when they wanted to roll back an extradition law. They've done that. The real question now is what do they want? Well, is it to preserve Hong Kong's independent character? What does that exactly mean? What will be the specifics they will demand? And is it likely to be too much for the mainland, for the authorities in Beijing to grant? So we're in a, an odd space now where it's not clear what will satisfy the people in the street, and it's not clear what the people in the mainland would be prepared to give or to do. So this kind of vagueness means that each side is going to test the other, and we'll just have to see how it plays out. But the potential for this to play out in an ugly way, I think, is real. Uh, next time I'm talking with Ash Carter, his brand-new book, Inside the Five-Sided Box, is fascinating. I don't know if you had a chance to read it yet, Richard, but it may be the best defense secretary memoir, and, and apologies to Vice President Cheney and Don Rumsfeld and Robert Gates, all of whom I've, I've interviewed. But it's so candid and so uh, unafraid of detail that the layman gets a lot of looks that they otherwise wouldn't get inside of DOD. He has a long chapter on China, and he rejects the Thucydides the trap that you and Graham Allison have talked about, especially Graham Allison and your friends both with Ash Carter. But he does note the rise in China of a leadership clique within the PLA, which stresses the century of humiliation that they've gone through and are aggressive around the globe. This Hong Kong business must make that clique angry and more powerful. Am I right? Well, they, this is what they've been saying, and uh, China you know, is in battle. Uh, it's funny, you mentioned uh, several things. One is Ash Carter, good friend. Uh, I'm closer to him than I am to Graham Allison on this. I don't think there's anything inevitable about uh, Thucydides' trap, a U.S.-Chinese Cold War, but we are closer to it today than we were when Ash was Secretary of Defense. I think both sides in some ways are mismanaging 
this uh, this relationship. And if we end up there, it will be bad for both countries, and you know, it will be bad for the world. This is the this is the defining relationship of the 21st century. And all you could say is, oh, we're not off to a good start you know, at the end of the uh, at the end of the uh, second decade of the uh, uh, of the century. We are not off to a good start, but we are off to clarity with Iran. Yesterday, Wendy Sherman, uh, I won't play you the long clip, continued the wake for the JCPOA. It really is kind of sad. They're trying to reanimate a dead body. It's like the the, the parrot in a Monty Python. The parrot is dead. The JCPOA <laughs> is dead. And they're trying to reanimate it. Now, at what point does the, the Europeans say, okay, this thing, you know, the John Kerry's dream child is dead? At what point do the Europeans rejoin us in force to bring the Iranians back to the table to get a good deal well it would have been a lot easier if we hadn't gotten out of it what i'm what i'm hoping out of this maybe I, this is the optimist of me is that the europeans and the u.s can come around to the position that we've got to prevent iran from going down this path but let's revise the jcpoa it's, its principal flaws were two the the constraints were too short-lived they ought to have been much longer and then the constraints ought to have concluded missiles yes. as well as nuclear material. So let's basically make a deal with the Iranians. Uh, that, that, that is, we will re- that's it. That's exactly right, Richard Haas. But, you know, if people keep wailing over the death of the JCPOA without admitting it was terminal when it was signed because it did not address the missiles and it did not have a long enough runway for the regime to change, which would have been 30 or 40 years, it's never going to be reanimated. If they want back what was bad, it's never going to happen. Well, even if you did get it back, it would only be back for a few more years. It's simply not a long-term enough agreement. My own view is that's its principal uh, flaw. But now it's all in play. So here's the opportunity. And the Iranian economy is seriously hurting. Last year and this year, it's estimated to be shrinking by 10%. That gives us uh, considerable leverage. So this administration, it's almost, let me use, a, uh, if I can, forgive me here for a second, a financial metaphor. This administration, it's like we did an investment. The investment is paid off. At some point, you've got to decide when to take a profit. This administration has invested in this relationship, has put tremendous pressure on Iran. Now is the chance, I believe, to take that pressure and translate it into something lasting. I would love to see the administration challenge the Europeans and say, okay, let's make a new deal. I think the Europeans would sign on to it. During the Obama administration, they were actually tougher than we were on the Iran on, on the approach to Iran. So I think the French, the Germans, and others would sign on to what I call uh, JCPOA 2.0 or JCPOA Plus. This is the moment to go for it. Well, it is the moment to get a new deal. I wouldn't rename it for the dead deal. I would, that'd be like saying the League of Nations is back. But, Richard Haas, we agree that if they put missiles in there and a longer time frame, then you've got something worth having. Richard Haas, always a pleasure to talk to you from the Council on Foreign Relations. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today.